about a hundred years ago, there was a man named Charles Blondin. And uh, Blondin was a famous tightrope walker. And so, and he rose to great fame and prominence because of all the cool things he did walking tightropes. And the story goes that he was in front of a large crowd one afternoon at Niagara Falls, where he walked a tightrope from Canada to the United States, back to, and back and forth, as he walked across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And that's pretty amazing. I mean, we think of Philippe Petit here in New York who walked the Twin Towers. That blows my mind. This guy walking Niagara Falls blows my mind. But he didn't just merely walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope, which is impressive enough. He went to one side, he grabbed a wheelbarrow, and he walked the wheelbarrow all the way across to the other side of Niagara Falls. And when he got to the other side, everybody's going nuts. They're going, oh, that guy just walked a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls. And, you know, he's pumping them up, I imagine. And he says, hey, who thinks I can carry a person across Niagara Falls on a tightrope in this wheelbarrow? And they all shouted and cheered, we know you can. We believe you can do it, Charles Blondin. You got this. You can do it. And he says, who wants to see me do it? And they're like, we do, we want to see it. Come on, you know, the great blonde, and we want to see it. And he looks across to the crowd and he says, any volunteers? Who will get in the wheelbarrow with me? And there was nothing. That's a famous story that a lot of preachers uh, have told, but the people came to be entertained, didn't they? They wanted to see somebody walk across a tightrope. And you got to give the people credit. They actually believed that this guy could walk across uh, that could, could carry a person across Niagara Falls in a wheelbarrow. They actually believed it. They believed he could do it. But when the moment came, no one in that crowd was willing to fully entrust themselves to their belief in him and get in the wheelbarrow themselves. They believed he could do it, but they didn't, be, they, they didn't believe him to the point where they were willing to entrust themselves to their belief in him. You know, preachers have told this story for years, and it's a great way to illustrate what genuine faith looks like. Martin Luther, the German reformer of the 16th century, said that genuine, mature faith in the life of a Christian grows in essentially three phases. The first phase of faith is knowledge. That's knowledge of Jesus, knowledge of the claims of Christ, knowledge of the possibilities that he brings. This is the equivalent of the crowd reading the poster advertising Charles Blondin who can walk a tightrope. That's knowledge. Oh, okay, there's someone that can do these things. We have, faith begins with knowledge of Jesus. The second phase of faith, however, is belief in that knowledge. Okay, it, we know, I know I'm, I'm aware of Jesus' claims. I'm aware of the possibilities of who Jesus is. But the second is I actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I actually believe that Jesus can do the things that the Scripture said he did. That would be uh, somebody saying, I believe that Charles Blondin can carry a person in a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls. Well, the third phase of faith is trust in the knowledge and in the belief that you have. This is the equivalent of getting in the wheelbarrow. Luther says that our faith in Christ is complete when all of these things are present in our lives. Knowledge, belief, but also trust. A willingness to trust in our belief, to, to put our lives in the hands of Jesus to know who Jesus is, believe who Jesus is, and be willing to entrust our lives to him, even when it's risky, and even when we don't know the, all the outcomes. 
In our passage today, we see a man move from knowledge to belief to trust in Jesus. And as we study this passage, I think we can learn a few things about what genuine faith looks like and what genuine faith brings in our lives. So we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of John together. Look with me in John chapter 4, verse 43. It says, After the two days, Jesus departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was a official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went with him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man be- and it says that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he believed himself and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So the story begins, Jesus has come back to Cana. Okay, remember, Cana is the small town where Jesus, a few chapters earlier, turned the water into wine and saved a wedding from ending. And he saved a couple, a bride and a groom, from shame. Well, since then, we've seen that Jesus has been traveling all over Judea, Galilee, even Samaria. And as he's been traveling all over the place, he's been showing kindness to people. He's been preaching. He's been teaching. And he's even been uh, performing miracles, signs and wonders. And so, as you can imagine, when somebody starts doing signs and wonders, word starts to get around about this guy. And so, all over the region, people are starting to hear about Jesus. And his fame and his reputation are growing. And people are starting to seek him out to see all these signs and wonders. And when he gets to Cana, it says that people were, they came to him. And they, when, they, when they heard that Jesus had arrived, the crowd started to gather. They were hoping to see one of these Jesus miracles. Well, at the same time, there was a man in Capernaum, which is about 20 miles away from Cana. And there, this man was a Roman official. Likely, he worked for King Herod. We don't know if he was a Jew or a non-Jew. Uh, the, the text doesn't really say. But what we do know is that he worked for the king. And he was a man of privilege. He was a man of power. He was a man of authority, probably a man of great wealth. He was a man who was accustomed to giving orders, and he was used to people doing what he said without question. And he was used to saying, what I say goes. But in this story, his power, his privilege, his authority, his wealth, he has found himself in a position where those things are meaningless. His son is dying. And when your son is dying, it doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank account. It doesn't matter how impressive of a resume you have or how many letters you have before or after your name or whatever. All that matters in that moment is that your son is dying and there's nothing you can do about it. And that, I'm convinced that a child suffering That's the worst kind of suffering a parent could ever experience. And this man is desperate, and so he loads up his things, and he leaves his dying son at home, 
and he makes the journey to Cana, 20-mile journey, hoping that maybe this Jesus can heal his son. So he sets off on this journey to Jesus, 20 miles. He comes, it's almost a marathon. You know, he comes to Jesus, he's out of breath. When he gets to Jesus, there's a crowd surrounding him. He cuts through the crowd, Jesus! And the crowd gets quiet. Jesus, I need you to come with me right now. My son is dying. And the crowd holds their breath. Oh, are we going to see a miracle? Are we going to see one of these Jesus miracles? And you're like, what is Jesus going to do? But Jesus' response is actually somewhat shocking and kind of offensive. He says, unless you, and this you is plural, it's a, you, it's a plural you, the equivalent of if you're from the South, y'all, if you ever heard that, or Jersey, yous guys. This is unless you people, unless you people, Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you're, you're not going to believe, are you? Jesus actually rebukes this man, and he rebukes all the people in the crowd. He says, is that what it's going to take for you to believe? Did you guys come to see a miracle? Is it, is it going to take you seeing a miracle for you to believe that I am the Messiah? Is that what it's going to take? Is that, is, that, is that what it takes for you to believe? Do you need to see a sign? Jesus is provoking these people in the same way that Charles Blondin provoked his audience. You guys believe that I can heal the sick and the dying? Yeah, we believe that, Jesus. Well, who's willing to trust me on that, Jesus essentially says. Who is willing to place all their faith in me, even if it costs you something? Jesus is testing this man to see not only if this man believes, but if this man is really willing, if his faith is deep enough that he's willing to trust Jesus. And some might walk away at this point. They're like, thanks for nothing, Jesus. I'm out of here. I came for you to heal my son, and you're giving me some cryptic answer. Forget it. No, don't, don't worry about it. I'm going home. But this man, you start to see belief begin to form in him. And he looks at Jesus, and he says, Jesus, will you please just come to Capernaum with me and heal my son? Jesus, I need you. Here's what I need you to do, Jesus. I need you to stop what you're doing. I need you to walk with me 20 miles back to my home so that you can go into my little boy's bedroom, you can put your hands on his dying body, and you can save him. And Jesus looks at him and says, go home, man. Your son will live. And Jesus has given this man his word. Your son is going to live. Now, on the surface, we're like, that seems great. Why, this guy, I mean, you'd think he'd be through the roof happy. But think about it, up to this point, if you've read the Bible, the Old Testament, this man was probably familiar with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there is not a single healing miracle where a prophet heals someone from a distance. It's always with a touch. It's always local. It's always in person. So this man has a bit of a dilemma. He has to trust that Jesus can do something that he has never heard of anyone else doing before, healing a dying child from 20 miles away. And this man, in order to obey Jesus, to trust Jesus here, he has to turn around, go back the way he came, walk 20 miles, trusting that Jesus' word was true. You see, think about how reassuring it would have been if Jesus had said, okay, yeah, man, I'm coming with you, let's go. Because every step of that journey, he would have Jesus right beside him to reassure him everything. Jesus, how are we going to do this? How are you going to do this? Are you going to, are you going to like touch him? Is like power going to go out? And he would, could ask questions of Jesus. He would have Jesus right there. He would be assured that Jesus was doing exactly what he wanted him to do. 
Jesus there every step of the way. But now Jesus uh, it has forced this man to take him at his word. He's forcing him to trust him. And think about the risk here. Because what if this man said, okay, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to walk 20 miles home. And what if he got there and his boy was sicker? Think of how much time has wasted. He can't, at that point, he can't turn around and go back to Cana and find Jesus and bring him back with him. If he gets back to his house and his boy is not healed, then all of that trip was for nothing. And he has, there's, no, there's nothing else he could do. This man has to trust Jesus every single step of that long walk home. Jesus is saying to him, do you believe I can heal your son? Go then. It's already done. Get in the wheelbarrow, essentially. Trust me. And what does this man do? I think if it were me, I'd probably negotiate, wouldn't you? Jesus, I, okay, I, I believe you can do it, but it would, just, it, would, it would really help me if you would just come with me. Like, it would, re- it would just be reassuring to me. Come on, Jesus, let, let, can we, would you come with me? At least come half the way. But this man does not negotiate. It says, it's all it says, verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. This is an act of faith. This man is putting his child's life in Jesus' hands. And I imagine as he was walking home, he was probably scared, wasn't he? Jesus said my son will live as he's walking. He's talking to himself. But boy, I really wish he was walking with me. I wish he was doing this another way. I wish he was doing this the way I asked him to do it. I wish he was doing this the way I would do it if I were him because I would do it better than him because I know better than him about how this should work out. I wish Jesus had showed me a sign before he made me place all my hope and all my trust in him. I wish he had given me a clearer explanation of how he would heal my son. But all he said was, go, your son will live. And every step of the way, this man had a choice between doubt and faith. He had the choice to cling to the hope and the truth of what Jesus said, your son will live. He had to cling to Jesus' word as he walked back into his suffering. And the story continues that as this man was walking home, he sees his servants off in a distance coming toward him. And I imagine at that moment, you know, his heart sinks. And all sorts of emotions flood through his body and his soul. And he's thinking, okay, there's my people. They're coming toward me. What are they going to tell me? Is this good news? Is this bad news? Did Jesus do it? It, it is, is my, am I going to hear that my son is dead? What are they going to tell me when they catch up to me on the road? And it says that the servants catch up to him and they say, Sir, he's going to make it. He's recovering. He's going to live. Your boy is going to live. And they probably started celebrating like crazy at that point. Do the thing, you know, where guys like hug each other and jump. And they're like, yeah, we got this. My son is recovering. He's doing it. And so excited. And then the, 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 the father probably pauses for a moment. And probably tears begin to form in his eyes. And he's thinking about his son, his boy is going to live. And I imagine he stops the guy, his servants and he says, hey guys, I, I'm curious about one thing though. Uh, what time did my son start getting better? And they say, oh yeah, yesterday, ah, around one o'clock. Verse 53 says, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed then him and all of his household. Now, this was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, there's a lot of things we can learn from this story. I want to give you just two things. The first thing is this, is this. The evidence of faith in the life of a Christian 
is obedience to Jesus. Do you want to know if your faith has some teeth to it? Are you obedient to the way of Jesus? See, in this story, we don't really know that this man really trusts Jesus until the moment that Jesus gives him a command. Go back home. Up to this point, the man has evidence of knowledge about Jesus. He has evidence of belief in Jesus. But we don't see evidence of actual faith, like willing to risk it all, willing to entrust himself to Jesus' faith until the moment he turns around and obeys the command that Jesus gave him and walks back home. Even without the answers, even though there was some risk. Now contrast this with some other encounters Jesus has with people in the scriptures. I think, for example, the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus. This is Mark chapter 10 and then Matthew chapter 19, I believe. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I know you're a good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, I've already done that, Jesus. And Jesus looks at him, and in Mark 10, 21, it says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go. Same command he gave the man in our story, go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Verse 22 says that disheartened by the saying, the rich young ruler went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. See, this is a man, the rich young ruler, he had knowledge of Jesus. Good teacher, I've heard that you teach good things. He believed, you even get the sense that he believed Jesus was the Savior in some way. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You don't ask just anybody that question. But he didn't really have faith that Jesus was enough and that Jesus' words were good and true. And he didn't believe. Jesus said, sell everything you have and you will have treasures in heaven. Jesus said, do what I say and you will have something better. But the moment he heard this command, the moment that Jesus asked him to do something that was risky or that threatened the thing that he loved the most, he walked away. You see, the rich young ruler's faith wasn't actually in Jesus. His faith was in his wealth. And he wasn't willing to give up that faith, faith in that thing, to put his faith in Jesus. And he walked away not knowing who Jesus, demonstrating a lack of faith. See, faith in Jesus. Our, you want to know how deep your faith is? How obedient are you to the way of Jesus and the commands of Jesus? I remember years ago, in the college ministry that I led before I came to Crossroads to be, our, be the pastor here, uh, we had a student from a Muslim family in our uh, church, in our college ministry. And she started coming to our ministry. She started hanging out with a lot of our students and our leaders. And she started que- asking questions about faith. And eventually, after months and months, she confessed faith in Jesus, belief in Jesus. She put her faith in him to save her. She converted to Christianity And after she made this confession, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. She she said, well, I've got to be baptized now, don't I? I was like, yeah, you've got to be baptized. That's what we do. When baptism is that first step of obedience, when you become a follower of Jesus, the first step of obedience is to be baptized. And baptism is a public profession of your faith in Jesus. That's the first thing, that's the first step you take as a follower of Jesus. You be baptized. It's it's a way to tell the world I am a follower of Jesus. I'm professing my public faith in Jesus. She said, well, I need to be baptized. 
And we're like, okay, yeah, great. And she looked at me and she said, do you realize that the moment that I get baptized, I might lose my entire family? She said, me becoming a Christian will bring so much shame upon my family that they might well abandon me and just cast me out of the family. I said, well, I said, you don't have to do this right now. She said, yes, I do. I've read my Bible, and I know that baptism is an act of obedience for people who follow Jesus, and I want to obey Jesus whatever the cost. Now, let me tell you something. You can't doubt the sincerity of her faith, can you? It was genuine, and it was evidenced by the fact that she was willing to obey Jesus even when it meant risking everything. And you go, whoa, that sounds like an extreme example, but I can assure you that there are those in our own church here who have been in that exact same position. But let me ask the rest of us. We say we have faith in Jesus. What is the evidence of your faith? Many of us look at some of the commands of the Bible, the hard ones, the ones about giving away a tenth of your income, the ones about forgiving your enemies, the ones about sex and marriage and dating and singleness. We look at those and we're tempted to say, look, God, I, bef- those are risky. Like, a, a, a t- a give away my income? Like, obey you and, and forgive my enemies, obey you in this area? That, that's risky. If I do that, it could cost me quite a lot. And so what we often do is, God, I need you to show me something before I take this step of faith. I need you to show me a sign that you're gonna provide if I take this step of faith. This is what Jesus is rebuking when he says, look, unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. I need to know, God, that I won't get taken advantage of at work if I do things the right way. I need to know, God, that you will provide before I am generous with my money. I need to know, God, that there is a dream spouse at the end of the road for me if I obey you in this area. I need a promise from you, God, before I, before I put all my chips in. And Jesus says to you and to me, he says, do you need a sign first before you believe? Do you believe that I am Lord? Do you believe that I am gracious and kind? Do you, do you really believe that my commandments, yes, even the ones about forgiving your enemies, even the ones about obeying in all these difficult areas, do you believe that my commands are for your good and for your joy? Then get in the wheelbarrow. Start with obedience. Second thing I want you to see from this passage is that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Every step of that walk home, this man, I imagine he was replaying the words of Jesus over and over in his mind. Jesus said, go, my son will live. Jesus said, go, my son will live. All right, I'm going. Jesus said, my son will live. Jesus said, my son will live. I'm tired. Oh, God, what's going to happen to my son? Jesus said he's going to live. I'm going to keep going. Jesus said my son is going to live. Jesus said my son is going to live. And he's just playing it over and over and over again. And he's taking Jesus' promise, and he is like tattooing it on his soul because it's the only hope he's got. It's the only thing he has is Jesus' word. And he's saying, I'm going to keep walking toward my son because Jesus said he will live. And every step of the way, the man was clinging to the promises of Jesus, believing what he hoped for would become a reality because Jesus said so. Not because he had seen it yet, but because he was convinced that Jesus' words were true. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, 
the author of Hebrews gives us a definition of what faith is. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There are a lot of things that we're hoping for right now in our lives. There are a lot of things that a lot of different people in this room and online are hoping for. Faith is the assurance that when God has said something will come to pass, it will come to pass, even if we have to walk a long journey in the meantime before we see it come to fulfillment. So it's, uh, it's Black History Month. And as much as I think uh, Martin Luther King and his I Have a Dream speech deserve the highest place of honor in our culture, you know, we wouldn't have that speech the way we know it without a woman named Mahalia Jackson. Mahalia Jackson was a gospel singer that often traveled with Dr. King. And before the march on Washington, uh, Dr. King, uh, you know, with a couple of people close to him, Mahalia Jackson included, he went over his speech with, with her. And he shared with her this part about the I have a dream portion of his speech. I have a dream where uh, children of slave owners and slaves will come together around the table. And he shared, he shared this dream he had with her where he offers a vision of an America that is no longer segregated and hostile toward one another where people are treated equally. Well, the next day on the march on Washington when King finally got up to deliver his speech, he was speaking and he was describing all the injustices of the Jim Crow laws. And he was describing, speaking of all the evils that black men and women had endured in the United States. And he was saying, look, you guys, we're, we're going to go back home to Louisiana. We're going to go back home to Georgia. We're going to go back home to Alabama. He's calling them to go back into their suffering and endure with hope that, that a better day will come. And Mahalia Jackson, gospel singer, she's sitting on the front row, and she realized that Dr. King was spending quite a bit of time talking about the injustices and the hardships. And she said, and in her mind, she said, he needs to move beyond the injustice and the pain, and he needs to give these people a, a vision for something greater and give them something to hope in. They needed hope, and they needed a vision of a greater future, a vision that could give them the strength to endure the pain of their current moment. And Mahalia Jackson shouted from the front room, front row, the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And Dr. King stopped for a moment. You can see it in the videos. He took his notes and he pushed them to the side of the lectern. And at that moment, his advisor, Clarence Thomas, who was sitting next to Mahalia Jackson, leaned over to her and said, these people out there, they don't know it yet, but they're about to go to church. And at Mahalia Jackson's urging, Dr. King went on with his famous I Have a Dream portion of his speech. And that moment changed the course of American history because it gave Americans a vision of a greater future. All those people in that crowd, they had to go home that day back to an unjust legal system, back to a place where they were treated as less of a person, back to a place where they were not afforded the same rights and the same dignity as their neighbors. But now they went with a hope. They went with a vision of what things could be one that we've made great strides to achieve in many ways, that vision here in our country. And I hope there are many, many more steps along the way. But they went home. They were able to go back into their suffering because they were given hope of a future that was better. And here's my point. We come to God with all sorts of pain and all sorts of fear. And we've all experienced all sorts of abuse and injustice in our lives and with loss and struggle. 
And we come to God and we beg for him to do something about it. And God has promised that in the scriptures, he will do something about it. He has given us a glimpse of what our future holds. Revelation 21, 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, those things have passed away. And John, the revelator, the author of Revelation, gives us a glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. And I don't know if you've ever read it, but you want to talk, if if you're feeling dry in your faith right now, and you're like, man, I need something stirred up in my soul, go read Revelation chapter 21. And if that doesn't stir something up in your soul, you need some smelling salts. Because when you get a vision for the future that God has promised us, you may have lost someone this year due to COVID-19. You may have experienced some really terrible abuses in your life. You may have walked through this life with the pain of all sorts of things. Just like this man, he walked, he walked that journey not knowing if his son would live. But Jesus has given us a promise on the very last page of the Bible that he is making all things new. And just like the man in this story, when we bring our request to God, he gives us a word of promise. And that promise is that one day every tear will be wiped from our eyes. It's a promise that Jesus is making all things new. He's making all things sad come untrue. It's a promise that God will bring judgment and he will punish all the evil that is in this world. It's a promise that although our bodies waste away in this world, we will have resurrected bodies in the next. Bodies that don't grow tired or weary and bodies that don't get infected by deadly viruses. Jesus has already given us. You say, I need a sign from God. Jesus has already given you the word, his word. The question is, do you believe him? And will you get in the wheelbarrow? Jesus has given us his word. That's a, this is our hope. And faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And you may say, it's really hard to be assured of these things right now because I don't see it. I need God to give me, I need God to show me something before I can really give myself to this. But we need to learn a lesson from the man in this story. It could be that you and I, we're on the 20 mile walk right now. We're in that in-between time where Jesus has promised that we will live. But we haven't yet got back to Capernaum into the room where there is death to experience it. And like this man, every step of the way had to cling to the promises of Jesus, even though everything was uncertain and risky. You and I, we don't, we are living between the promise of Jesus and the realization and the fulfillment of those promises. But do we believe that he's good? He'll make good on his promises. If we do, if we believe that he is capable, then we cling to his promise. If we believe that Jesus is a man of his word, believe that he is trustworthy, we may have all sorts of anxieties and fears. Jesus knows this. But you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus didn't say, look, I'm gonna calm all your fears first and then I want you to seek my kingdom. Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and all these things will be added to you in due time. Do you trust that God is faithful today? I don't know what 20 mile journey you've gotta walk when you walk out of these doors, but do you believe that God is faithful? and that he is true to his word. Will you cling to that word and will you get in the wheelbarrow? Let me pray for you. God, we believe that you are a man of your word. And we know that you're 
word is trustworthy because Jesus is, he's the picture of that. God, you didn't leave us alone in our sin or in our loneliness or our shame or our guilt, but yet you sent Jesus born of a virgin, born into the fullness of time, born under the curse of the law to redeem those who are under the curse of the law so that we could receive adoption as children of God. God, you've made word on your promise before and we believe that you'll make promise good on your promise again. And so we trust you. We entrust our lives to you even when it's risky, even when it's costly, even when we don't see what the next step is gonna look like. We trust that you'll be there at the end. And so God, we trust you. We give our lives to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.